Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. The Dean, amongst Italian wine merchants, Dino Tentawi, stops by to tell us about his history with Italian and Austrian wine importation. Dino okay. Tentawi on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. How are you? Very nice to have you here. Thank you very much. And so how did you get into the, the wine side of that? I know your dad had a big seller. Yeah. How did that come about? I mean, where did you decide that, <clears throat> hey, I want to get more into this? Well, my dad was, you know, uh, was the ambassador of Turkey in Austria at that time, in back in the late fifties uh, and sixties. For Germany, or <laughs> no, for for what? Turkey, for Turkey, for Turkey and so Austria. He was he, he in Austria. He was the Turkish ambassador. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. I am a little slow. No, it's okay. And uh, you know, we had a beautiful cellar at home, so uh, I grew up, you know, go walking around in my beautiful cellar and. Uh, my father, you know, helped me to have more passion into wine. So I study and I've uh, been counting all the bottles in the cellar all the time. And, uh, mostly Bordeaux at that time? or uh, Mostly Burgundies and Bordeaux. Got it. You know, and Alsace and also some uh, German wines as well and some Rheinhessen. Uh, it was a beautiful cellar, you know, at the time we had like... I remember in 78 when my father died, I had to make an inventory for the whole cellar. I was 19 at that time and I did my, my sommelier course. And uh, I found, you know, from 1958, Richburg to uh, Granny uh 61s, and it was really a, a great seller. And I made some money out of the seller as well. And, and did you work as a sommelier for a while or no? I did work as a sommelier for a while. How did that go? It was interesting, uh, you know, especially in New York back in, uh, in the 80s, uh, early 80s, like 82, 83. You know, going, you know, serving wine to Woody Allen and you know, the guys mm -hmm. like dipping the bread into the Chateau Lafitte 1964 and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah? Well, was it good bread, though? Well, the yeah. bread was good. Yeah, you know, bread it was, was nice. Yeah. Kaiser Rolls. You know. <laughs> is that the true story? He did that? It is a true story, yeah. 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 As a joke or as, a, as on purpose? No, no, no. He just like to dip his bread into the wine. Yeah. I think it's, you know, $600 bottle of wine then, you know, was, uh, he wanted to have a meal out of it. Yeah, well, it gives a new meaning to wine pairing, I think. You know, wine and food combinations. Especially 61 Chateau Lafitte. 
huh, I never heard that story. Yeah. So we worked in a time. Uh, yeah, I, was, I worked. Or? I worked at the Waldorf Astoria. I was, oh, you did. Uh, I was working there as a beverage director back in uh, for the whole hotel. Or yeah, for the whole hotel. Yeah. Wow. So that's so, you know, there's a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was you know, it's beverage department. You know, you have you know many things to look at. You know, the banquets and all the sure. la carte and you know the, the job. So how did you come to the New York scene out of Austria? What, uh, well, I was I just graduated from Hotel Fachschule in Zurich, and I was uh, doing my training in Munich at the time. And uh, I was an offer by Hilton Hotels at the time. Waldorf Astoria was a standalone, you know, kind of hotel. And then I applied, and I got the the job, and I moved to the states. And I did, for the job. For a job, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're the only guy that apparently moved here for not a girl. Everyone else seems to have moved here for a girl. There was this girl, and I met her at a rock concert. And then we... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you do like girls. A lot. Okay, just making sure <laughs> who I'm talking to. All right, so you're at the Waldorf. And yeah. then, uh, you know, what's the wine scene back like then? I well, back it. back then was, you know, uh, you find, you know, the, the, the list was mostly uh, consistent of uh, French uh, white and French red, the most popular one, Puy-Fusé, Puy-Fumé, Chassani Montrochet, all these, you know, classical uh, Burgundies and classical Bordeaux and also tons of, uh, at the time, wasn't that much of California wine in the New York scene. Okay. So you had like, you know, Mondavi was, was in the list uh, was uh, Jordan was on the list uh, Krug was on the list uh, I mean it was a whole different scene it was when California was making and they were making some great wines at that time mm -hmm. uh, different than the new uh, generation of UC Davis graduates uh, mostly pharmacist uh, style of wine which I don't like very much mm -hmm. and so what drove you to leave the the beverage director gig and start doing more importation uh, well, you know, it's uh, personal reasons. You know, the salary was quite uh, low in comparison to Europe, and uh, my rent was way higher than my salary. So I have to, you know, get some loans for my mom. And uh, is this the place on Park Avenue that you were living in at the time? <laughs> no, the views at the Central Park, or no, we're close to Central Park. Yeah, I was between yeah. Columbus and uh, Central Park. Oh, so there you go. Perhaps a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you started bringing in wine. And what did you start with? Did you start with Austrian wine, or did you start with Italian? I started with Italian wines, uh, and at that period, also, I had uh, great uh, experience with the Italian Trade Commission, and I was uh, uh, claimed uh, the title of the ambassador of Italian wines back then. Because oh yeah. I was doing all the seminars for Italian wine, all the indigenous varietals, and at that time was New York City was like selling, you know, Pinot Grigio and Gavi and yeah, so I mean, Classico Rufino and Cali and all this stuff. Yeah. What drove you to do Italian in that market when it was all French at that time? Like, what? Because where was the interest? The French was was a very easy wine to uh -huh. go about. It's not as complex, and also the varietals. I mean, if you go to Italy, you have four thousand nine hundred and fifty different varietals. Mm -hmm. In France, it's maximum like sixty different varietals. Mm -hmm. So it's not challenging enough for me, and uh -huh. I like to challenge myself all the time. Yeah, and you know, I've traveled through Italy when I was young, so I have a lot of you know feel for Italian wines. I've been also to France, and I've, I've been to Chateau Latour and Chateau Lafitte. I've been to most of the classified Bordeaux, you know, growing up. But I found this beautiful sense of uh, the the Italian wines and uh, its expression, you know, in every glass. It's always different, and that's exciting for me. 
I don't like wine taste the same in every glass. So who was the first producer that you brought in from Italy? Um, the first producer came in the United, to the United States from my portfolio was Hilberg Winery. Oh, okay. And you still uh, work with them? Yeah. Hilberg yeah. Pasquero. Yeah, Miklo Pasquero and his wife, Annette Hilberg. And so what was the reception like trying to sell wines that were from the Pimante, Little Barbera, in the market of the 80s? What was that like? Not in the 80s. I'm talking that's for my company. Yeah. In the 80s, I was mostly working between these uh, hotels and restaurants, the Rainbow Room at that time also. Uh, but I start to be as an importer myself yeah. in, uh, from the 90s on, like 1990. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. When I was at VS Imports at that time. And so things were starting to roll with, uh, with some of the Italian restaurants in New York at that time. Yes, the scene has changed. I mean, if the 70s were mostly French restaurants, and mid-80s started the trend to go towards Italian restaurants and lesser of French restaurants, most bistros and uh, brasseries and French restaurants, they were in a decline uh, mode. And also most of the Bordeaux at that time being sent to Japan. Mm-hmm. when uh, sure, the Black good... Monday happened in 1987, and it was the beginning of increase of the Italian wine into this market. So what do you think was the catalyst for the change in the American consumer from saying, hey, I want to go have uh, a French wine, a Bordeaux at a brasserie, to, hey, I want to go to a casual Mediterranean-inspired vibe? Is I mean, it was... I mean, if you if you go back in the period, this a lot of people uh, were looking for the change. Mm-hmm. People were kind of uh, getting bored with. Uh, I'm not talking about you know the top top restaurants like you know at that time was Lutes was Andre Soltner was sure. a, such a beautiful place and continued for generations. Uh, I'm talking about you know there's like a lot of mediocre French places also mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the clientele and the, the the consumer was like kind of I'm looking for something simpler, and uh, casual, and I want to have a bottle of white uh, or bottle of red like uh, Billy Joel did, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was also a nice uh, help and uh, support for Italians in uh, in in the scene of New York City. So, who were some of the restaurant tours that were really hitting at that time, ninety ninety one? Uh, Pino Longo is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Coco Pazzo and Le Madre, uh, big uh, situation. Uh, Tony May was San Domenico. Chris Cannon was uh, Remy, and uh, before Remy was Palio. Palio. Um, actually, the, one of the best chefs ever came to the United States at that time was Andrea Hegel, the owner of Palio. And it was a big loss when we have the news that he died of cancer. Um, most of the people, they were like very exciting about going to Italian restaurant and experiencing Italian wines and learning more about Italian wines because the cuisine was quite affordable and the cuisine did not have that many big sauces involved in it. It's just an olive oil-based food. So that was more of an attraction to somebody lives in New York that you want to have like, let's say, uh, just a little plate of uh, spaghetti pomodoro or uh, having mozzarella and tomato or having uh, just a little piece of uh, vitello, tonato, something simple, you know. Which is uh, how you often eat. I, when you come in, you're like, hey, can you chop up some carne crudo for me? I just want something simple. Like, is exactly. Has that, that always exactly. kind of been the style for you? Just like- For me, because, you know, I've been in the restaurant scene for many years and I've been to 
almost all the top places in uh, around the world too. Um, I like simplicity and I don't yeah. like uh, complication. Uh, sometimes I like you know big full meal, but also don't don't forget. And I have gout now, so I can not eat everything as I used to. I used to eat foie gras every day. Right. Uh, you can you can ask John George for that. How many <laughs> times? Been to Vang when he just opened the place, and I've been there like seventeen times, and I had foie gras in every shape or form imaginable. So, what were some of the big openings like Vong that happened uh, during that mm. that period? What were some of the things that were like, wow, this is really hidden? Well, the the biggest one at that period was I think Creamy was like huge revolution at the time. Was the wine list that it was very well uh, worked out. Was uh, Chris did a great job there. And Chris Cannon also Chris Cannon. And Francesco also is the cousin of uh, Venice, and um, <clears throat> and, and Remy's still there. It's in Midtown. Remy's still there. Actually, I just went there the other day just to see how is this place doing because I haven't been there for a long time since Francesco sold it. Uh, it's still there. The place is still there. I haven't eaten. I just had a white wine spritzel and I walked out. Yeah, but it used to be uh, quite quite popular. Chris told me they used to do like three, three, four turns a night. Just, oh, yeah. It was incredible. The like, place was like uh, almost 700 covers every single day. And yeah. It's like uh, lunch. They were, everybody in the city want to go have lunch at Remy. Yeah. Uh, Brian Mela did a very nice review for, for Remy also. Um, Times, a very big influence on uh, uh, New York consumers. And, um, you know, everybody in the media, you, you go to like, you know, Who's who is always there at Remy. But was it a smaller scene in terms of restaurants at that time? I mean, it seems like now there's quite a few high-end restaurants. Yeah. Even with the, the recession, it seems like there's a lot of places you can go. Were there always that many places, or has that kind of developed? No, it's developed a lot. So back then, there's maybe more of a smaller... That was like, you know, you know, you can, you can come in, you know, one or two hands in the mm. amount of uh, top-end uh, Italian restaurants. I mean, it was Palio, Remy... Uh, at the time, there was another place called Toscana on the Upper East Side that's become Vang after that. It was okay. Uh, there was Pinolongo places that were very hot at that very, time. Very popular, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened with the development of Tony May? I, I always hear about uh, San Domenico and how uh, some of the traditional re- recipes were brought in there and really popularized and their mm. support of black, you know, white and black truffles. And uh, Sure. How did that go down? Well, it's uh, it's still still working, and I think uh, with a lot of people that they might disagree about Tony May, he was like uh, the first person to bring in the high end Italian restaurant in New York City. Yeah, with the support of Andrea Hegel to open Palio, uh, that was something huge. And even the New York Times they gave the restaurant at that time two stars, and uh, Andrea Hegel the the the. Owner, the the partner at that time was Tony May, you know, sent a huge letter to Brian Miller really uh, explaining his dismay of his review because it was quite uh, remarkable that somebody doesn't know enough about uh, Haute Cuisine Italian and talking about it like if he's gone to Little Italy restaurant, this is not a Mamma Mia kitchen. Right. And uh, from that point on, Tony May opened his own uh, San Domenico was... Uh, at Central Park South at that time. And now he's in uh, his D26 on 26th Street and between Madison something. So what was the development like with someone like Mario Batali when he when he was first at Poe? 
Did you see that coming? Just yes. the hurricane? That I was, was gonna... No, I was actually there uh, at Poe with uh, his partner, also Steve Crane. Uh, it's a nice place. Uh, it was too small for me because a guy goes to Midtown. When you go downtown, there's a whole different uh, area. So I went to the place like, uh, like a room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's like yeah it's too small and it's like i'm tall so when i want right, to go to place i need man. like some more oxygen over my head <laughs> and this place was like too small and like i i say to steve it's like what is this too small I said, oh it's good you know it's nice place intimate they call it yeah, yeah. so uh the food is good Mario did a great job there, and then uh, he made a name for himself. Also, Steve, uh, also very good uh, in the situation, uh, uh, building a nice little place that made a mark. And from that point on, Mario, you know, uh, started his other projects later on in his life. With with Joe Bastianich. Yeah, that was like 19 years ago in the open uh, pole. So, did you ever see those guys at like the Blue Ribbon late night thing? Oh yes, we used to we used to do this a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, so this is Soho, and it was kind of like the after, yeah, it was like work. the beginning of Blue, Blue Ribbon, and everybody from the restaurant scene that the after they finish work they go down there. We so who's there? there. Uh, it's like from uh, Chris Cannon, uh, uh, Joe Bastianich at the time, uh, Mario Batali. Uh, there was. Uh, some French restaurant guys too they used to come down there, mm -hmm. like uh, Jean-Jacques Rachou used to come down there. There was oh, okay. uh, a bunch of people uh, that they were always, you know, hanging out there, having some oysters, you know, drinking wine at two o'clock in the morning. And uh, some people prefer some other stuff to drink, you know, <laughs> a lot of schnapps and grappa as well. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a, a clubhouse for you guys. Yeah. And so, on the import side, how have you seen the company change over a few years? I mean, sure. what's what's been the? You've developed quite a few selections. You're in Austria. How have you seen things go about? Well, when I started my company, <clears throat> my person that came in from the history of the one in New York and knowing all the sommeliers' demands and uh, and needs, uh, I based my company on on their needs and also my discovery. So I. I think that's an interesting point because that's what I see you do too. You really yeah. make a friend of the sommelier. Absolutely. Like, because I, I think maybe what a lot of people wouldn't know about you is that you don't call and ask for an appointment. You come in for dinner and you yeah. introduce yourself. Sure. And then you become a friend of the house. And, yeah. and then you hang out with that guy. Sure. Maybe at Blue Ribbon at that time or wherever it would be now, even there. Yeah. And then uh, that's how business is done. It's a very unique kind of model. Like a lot of people... You know, call, I mean, drop off the price book, <laughs> wait for the call. You know, I used, I used to do this when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, what, what you see me now is like after 25 years of development, I have relations with, with almost everybody that's important in the marketplace. And um, that uh, style or that's, that's my way now because I have relation with most of those people. So it's not like... People are annoyed by me coming in. No, no, you that's know? not what I mean. I meant you know, the other way. It seems to fun. work quite well. Yeah, 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 because because I have a good relation with them. You know, it's not like uh, I'm coming in to tell you you have to buy wine. Right. You know, I'm telling you it's hello. But a lot of people drop off the card, and then people are like, ah, "I'm never calling that guy." But you don't seem to take no for the answer. You want to come in and make a friend of the house. Like this is exactly. You. If if the place is good enough for for my uh, grades of restaurants in the city. 
I would like very much to be part of the scene of that place. You so know? you look at yourself as a guy who likes to market towards higher-end restaurants in New York? Uh, not only that, uh, I only also deal with high-end wine shops as well, mm-hmm. and also you know mid-range, you know mid, mid-sized restaurants as well. I mean, I I have no discrimination against people. You know, they can have whatever. So, what has been the retail outlook on Italian wine in the last say twenty years? How's it changed? Oh, that changed a lot. Yeah, the retail has uh, really changed dramatically from just uh, buyers buying wine for the store for. Uh, the immediate consumption and mm-hmm. to people buying vintages and looking for uh, the new releases and uh, uh, getting more information about the wineries that they are buying wine uh, from. And some people start to even to do their own import and bring their their own import into their shop, uh, shops. And uh, I think it's much better seen in, in, in the market today where you see, um, you know, places like Italian wine merchant is build the, the wine fund in their liquid assets for $10 million. Uh, this is a very smart move for, for somebody like Sergio to do. Um, some other wine shops uh, in a lesser you know, interest for Italian wines, they're always like looking just for whatever commercial wines. Where Italian wine merchant, you find places you know, that if you want significant, very particular varietal, you will find it there because the quality there is much higher than maybe 90% of the marketplace. Do you feel like Italy has developed its classic wines in the New York marketplace at this point? Like people have a sense of the great wines of Italy, whereas before maybe they didn't think Italy made great wines like 20 years ago? Absolutely. This is, this is a fact. Uh, if you go back 25 or 30 years back in New York City where people just like looking at Italian wine, uh, Suave Bola and... Uh, Amaroni from Bola and uh, some Reserva Ducali and all these uh, Santa Margherita. These wines then they costed like maybe six or seven dollars a bottle. Yeah, you know, for for a restaurant to buy and to sell to their consumers and their customers in the restaurant, and quite limited uh, names or brands in comparison to the amount of brands that came in from France. Uh, from the 90s, you know, let's say from 93 on, was the great development of brand building in New York City that you find people started to say, you know, I know Giacomo Conterno, I know Aldo Conterno, I know Produttori Barbaresco, I know uh, these brands. Before that time, nobody can, you know, find them, or Gaia for that matter. So is that something you really saw develop during your days at Vias? Yeah. So who was there with you at Vias at that time? I was Levio, Panabianco, uh, myself, and uh, Robert Mackin. And, uh, okay, so yeah. three guys who now run their own import yeah. company specializing yeah. in Italian wine. Yeah, that's my old team. So how was that? How was that? I mean, did you guys have the meeting where it was like, hey, so we need to have people stop drinking Pinot Grigio and start drinking something real? Or what? Yes, yes. We, 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 we had some, some focus strategies to up, uplift the market. And uh, How, um, What did you guys do to approach that? Was it working through restaurants? or Working through restaurants and working through wine shops and explaining our wines in comparison to what's out there in the market. We did blind tasting with everybody to make sure that people are not just like, we are not forcing people to change their brands from Bola and all this commercial stuff and going through something really nice and tasty and uh, they can put in their cellar or they can consume immediately or they can drink in five, 10 years, whatever. So what were some of the wines in the portfolio at that time? 
That's oh, was, at that time it was uh, Aldo Conterno, there was uh, Produttori Babaresco, there was uh, Corneria Arnaiz, uh, there was uh, Salvioni Brunello, there was uh, the Forno Romano Amaroni. I remember them like if it was yesterday because I really build these brands like I build my brands today and uh, find a lot of similarity between the style and uh, between winemaking and also the terroir in, in this period of time and also this time of that I have my own company as well. Do you think winemaking has changed a little bit in Italy in the last few years? I mean, have we seen uh, our, you know people step away from the oak barrel or? Well, I mean, if you if you talk about the oak barrels, it really vary because mm-hmm. it's a very good you know subject to talk about because uh, there was a period of time when Italy was making the wine only in Porte Grandi, which is the big tonneau, the big barrels, three hundred and fifty hectoliter barrels, or five hundred hectoliter barrels, or six hundred hectoliter barrels. This is, was the normal uh, way of making wine, either that or just like fermenting in a fermenter, which is like a stainless steel tanks or fiberglass tanks. Um, the barrique uh, beginning uh, started when people like uh, Marco Di Grazia started his company and started to dictate to his producers uh, what kind of uh, fermentation and what kind of work they should do around their vineyards. And uh, he started more uh, into the cellar first before looking in the vineyards. So you think the Grazi, the importer, kind of pushed people to, to use towards more oak. that modern uh, invention of uh, vinification and storage? Is this specifically in Piemonte that you would say that, or no? That was you know overall everywhere, overall. everywhere, yeah. And but the areas that people more you know familiar with are Piedmont and Tuscany, and uh, this is the most important two areas. And then you have people uh, well, no wine from Abruzzo because very uh, mass-produced wine. Uh, you have uh, also the Pinot Grigio from all kind of places. Uh, it's also been done in that kind of format as well. But the reception to that that style was quite uh, welcome. Yes, kind of late in the late nineties, that kind of thing. That uh, the perception of of the people drinking Gaia at that time was that the full barrique uh, aging uh, was was great. Uh, Clerico, you know, nineteen ninety. Uh, was also, you know, a lot of barrique involved. That's different than at the same period when the first guy who did all this barrique invention into Piedmont was uh, Valentino Meliorini from Rocca di Manzoni. Oh, okay. That's somebody you know. Yeah. I mean, he's the one who really started, you know, on his own without any consultation with De Grazia or anybody. And because if his innovation... And his success of using barriques that make everybody else to copy what he has done. So the Grazi started telling his producer to do that, like Clerico and uh, Sigesio. Have you spoken uh, with him about why he made that change? I think the the reason for for that change was to make Italian wine more approachable for the French uh, wine drinker and uh, the New World drinker. Just like to have Italian wine on the table instead of looking at the Italian wine, looking down at the Italian wine. So, in other words, there really wasn't a high-end market for Italian wine at the time no. in the New World, and he was looking for a way to exactly bridge to, the gap. Exactly. Mm. And would you say that his style has remained consistent, or is he kind of backed off a little bit, or what's he up to these days? He's very. He's actually he's using now amphora, which is called no uh, way. Yes. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes, I just came from there uh, two weeks ago, and uh, he's, so using, he's using clay amphora. 
using the cement uh, for uh, that oh, has okay. the breathing like the from eggs. it, like the eggs. Yeah, yeah, he's got like 25 eggs right now. Wow. Yeah. But, but not a lot of oak in the cellar, or it's large oak? Yeah, or? no, there is, there is both. There is the Pote Grande, there is sure. Barrique, but his Barriques are different. It's not like uh, the commercial ones. <clears throat> and what is he Yeah, the special Barrique, uh, that they come from France, from, from Burgundy, most of them, and they don't have that uh, oakiness that people sometimes get uh, annoyed by. Uh, his Barriques are... Very expensive to start with. I mean, if you spend thousand two hundred euro per per barrel, it better be very good for the wine and uh, better have a great effect, not a negative effect. So, uh, what is he talking about when he talks about what he's up to these days? I mean, how how does he see the progression of 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 what he's doing? He's, he's going direction uh, for our eggs more to to use for the fermentation process. Uh, he has now his other uh, new winery, which established in 1999. Uh, his son now, Luca Valentino, has passed away in 2007. He's a very good friend of mine as well. And his son, which is also a good friend, Rodolfo Meliorini, and uh, he's one of those people that they're very much precise in every uh, step of the way of making good wine. And he has been making great results from the first venture that he did was 99 until now. And he's got the Pianpovole Soprano winery by itself, which is totally biodynamic, seven-year-old Barolo. And uh, he got another one called the Madonna Sunta, which is, just came into the United States, never been here before, which is a 10-year-old Barolo. Uh, the prices, yes, they might be higher than a lot of people had in the past because also the, the work that goes through making these wines costs a lot of money. Uh, so another producer you have in uh, Piemonte is Scarzello. Federico. Do you do you feel like his? Um, where would you put him stylistically in between traditional and modern? Where does he fall into the spectrum? No, it's very much traditional. Uh, Federico Scarzello is for me in Barolo. He can stand side by side to Bartolo Mascarello and uh, and uh, Rinaldi and those guys out there, uh, without a doubt. Is but he's probably great. twenty years younger. Absolutely, he's maybe thirty years younger. So, do but you his father was making the wine in the past, Giorgio. Right. And uh, was almost the same style, similar to the neighbors. Do you feel that the younger generation in the Piemonte might be moving more towards the traditional idiom than they would have 10 years ago? Uh, that's correct. So you feel like that for him is something that's important, is to kind of bring out a little transparency like that? Or? Well, he was graduated, uh, I think, 2000. But while he was studying, he was always looking to the traditional way of uh, working between the vineyard itself, because... Most of my producers, they are more mostly farmers. They are out there in the field, out there in the vineyard. They're not sitting down becoming pharmacists and trying to make formulas of wine. So they work with whatever the material that they have, and they try to do the best out of it. If they can do it, they don't make a vintage. So who are some of the other producers that really stand out for you on the portfolio? Over the years? Yeah. For the past 12 years, I think uh, Federico Scarzello, I think in Barolo, is one of the best choices that I had uh, to to have him in. Cascina Ebreo is uh, Peter Weimar. Oh, okay. But he's associated with that too, right? He helps them out? Yeah, he helps them out, yeah. Uh, like but Frederico Peter Weimar, is this, this is his vision for making this wine mm -hmm. more. Uh, he helps him there. Uh, I have also Giancarlo Nada at, uh, in Barbaresco in Trezzo. Okay. Makes one of the best Barbarescos. Uh, I have also San Giuliano. It makes also great Barbaresco in Navy. So they are all very much into terroir-driven uh, wine. Uh, 
in Tuscany, we have also some uh, great producers down there that they make some one of the best brunellos in the market, Collimatoni and La Fornaccia, called Delamo. Um, I my search is is always looking for people that they are connected to the earth, connected to their own senses. Uh, people not like the commercial export manager for XYZ, huge winery, uh, making 350,000 cases of wine. Uh, my average producer makes about, uh, total production is 2,000 cases. So what do you uh, find yourself looking for when you taste with someone in, in the vineyard or in the winery? What, what sends off the signal for you that this is somebody I really want to work with? Uh, the honesty of the winemaking. Yeah. And also, I look at the history behind the winery. Mm -hmm. I stay away from ex-lawyers and ex-managers uh, and ex-stockbrokers uh, that got involved in the wine business because they have money. Mm -hmm. uh, I stay with the originality. You feel like that's something that's happened increasingly in the last that's few years? a lot, yeah. This is like a lot of architects are in Tuscany right now having their own wine. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, doctors, a lot of professors that, you know, that they want to be in the wine business, which is uh, something different than their normal life that they used to. So, so when you say you're looking for someone with history, what you mean is you're looking for someone where they've made wine there for a while? For generations. Yeah. More, I mean, like Nada, by example, they've been making wine there since 1912. Miklo mm -hmm. uh, Pasquero in Hilberg, 1912 as well. Uh, Scarzello from the 1800s. Uh, the winery of Rocca di Manzoni has been making wine since 1790. Uh, it's a pretty beautiful winery when you see it yeah. from the road because yeah, it kind of sits out there. Well, next time I'll invite you there. Was, uh, uh, yeah, the last time I tried to go and they sucked the dogs on me. Did you see the dog? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. The dog was got two heads. <laughs> <laughs> it's really... <laughs> they, they have a dog with two heads. At, at... It's a Mastiff. Oh, yeah? Either one I get come near this dog. <laughs> Really? Is that because it moves really fast that it has two heads? or The heads is huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay. So Barolo was uh, a passion of yours or? Well, if you go to my office, you're going to see a big poster behind my desk. Got one name of a variety is called Nibbiolo. Mm -hmm. I, um, I love Nibbiolo and I drink, you know, massive amount of it. And I'm always very happy when I have more Barolo than anything else. Do you think it's really well understood in this country even today? I think there is still lots of work we can do between you and I and everybody in the industry uh, to give the people the awareness of what Barolo is all about because there are a lot of people really misperceive uh, the Barolo effect and it's the king of wines and uh, one of these wines that give you a great feeling after you finish one bottle or two or three. So when you say uh, they misperceive it, what do you think the, what would you say to Americans who say, well, I haven't had a lot of Barolo, what should they be thinking about? I will tell them, you know, don't think that you're going to have a Sangiovese in your glass. Mm -hmm. It's an Ibiolo. Because Tuscany is quite famous yeah. for Brunello, and yeah. you're saying it's a different region, a different wine. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. Don't don't look at the color of the wine and say, oh, I want to have it more denser than this because it's not Cabernet Sauvignon. So you think sometimes people are looking for something bigger than what's actually Absolutely. being poured? Pe people think Barolo is going to taste like an Australian Cabernet Sauvignon or something. Mm -hmm. And that's totally on the contrary. If you like Barolo, if you like Burgundy, you're going to like Barolo. 
and that's the only comparison you can have to Barolo. You know, it'd be like a Louis Saint George drinker will drink Barolo anytime. The guy who drinks uh, uh, wines from uh, Cotroti will also be driven too towards Nibiolo as as another variety that might match his balance, uh, his passion. I'm sorry. What's the aging curve for a lot of Barolo? I mean, should be people be putting it away for a few years, a lot of years? What's your experience opening up things from the 60s, the 80s, the 90s? I have tasted Barolo all the way to 1922, 21, I'm sorry. That's the oldest vintage I had. And it was uh, Giacomo Conterno 21. And after that, it is also. I think some... that was like the first vintage. Montfortino was the yeah, first year. Yeah, 1921. Yeah. Yes. And then they have also 1936, 1937. Uh, and I've tasted from that point on some 40s, 1945, 1947, uh, 1956, 1958, 1961, 64, 66. 67. So you're uh, saying it can age quite for a while? Uh, Barolo can age for more than 100 years with no doubt, maybe more. Uh, it depends how do you like your if you want a Barolo that aged enough and really mature, you go for at least 10, 20 years old uh, Barolo and you start to drink in these wines. Is it a fairly linear progression though, or are there times when they kind of close in and you got to wait for a little slack, second? I think the peak time, 90% of the time for all the vintage that I've tasted, which I've tasted close to half a million wines uh, in Barolo. Just today or... No, it's like, like, like the weekend. 20 years ago. <laughs> no, the weekend, only seven bottles of wine, that's all. I don't like to uh, drink too much. To, uh, I, uh, I think Barolo can have a peak of 20 years peak to 70 years peak. Mm -hmm. So you can have a wine 20 years old and you can say, oh, it's still the wine is very young. And then you put it down in the cellar and go back to it like, you know, five years later and the one will be even better. And you say, oh, let me put it back down. Most of these, you know, you also look at where it's, where in Barolo, because you have a Sierra Longa di Alba, 100 years. You go to Grabalfa sure. and Selma, you know, you, can, you cannot open the bottle on release. There's no way. Uh, you go to Monforte di Alba, you know, it's a little bit more approachable. Uh, you go to Canubi, it's... Closer, we go to Barolo. It's beautiful and ready to drink anytime. You go to Castiglione Faletto. It has a little bit of intensity in it that requires a little more aging. You go to uh, Novello. It's yet or no. You know, it takes also a few years for the wine to open up in Novello. It's all relative to the terroir and which crew the wine are coming from. But if you have any Sierra Longa di Alba, you have to wait for a long time. So do you think it's been helpful then that people have moved more towards single vineyard bottlings uh, yes. in Barolo in the last, say, 15, 20 years? Absolutely. In terms of understanding what you have in front of you? Yes. But do American consumers grasp those vineyard differences, or is it still sort of Barolo is the overarching idea and they don't know the difference? No, I think you know the, the, the educated uh, consumer or the wine collector, uh, they really know exactly what they like uh, when it comes to uh, Barolo. I think Barolo is uh, for it's like the blue chip for every seller from anybody that mm -hmm. really knows wine. Uh, I have various friends that they are in various sellers that they own, 
And there is a big chunk of, of their cellar is based on Barolo wines. But you also bring in wines from Austria, so maybe we should talk about sure. that for a little bit. What's, yeah. the, uh, what's the scene like in Austria these days? Well, the scene in Austria right now is uh, so beautiful uh, that we went through all these big changes from uh, the old days with the antifreeze in 1985, where the Austrian government uh, uh, reestablished itself for the Austrian wine marketing in 1986. And... Uh, there is no uh, any added anything to the wine. Even the chaptalization in some areas is totally illegal. Uh, you find Austrian wines today are consumed not only in Austria, it's all over the world. But what and kind if, of wines are these guys interested in making these days as opposed to um, what they might have been making? They are making what, what their land, you know, giving them. Uh -huh. Most of them, they go traditionally, the people that I know of. Uh, you know, people in the region, they only make Zeffandler uh, or Gifla, which is, that's the varietal of the region. People in Wachau, they make the, the three different uh, styles of uh, uh, classification, which is Parakt, which is uh, the highest elevation of the Wachau region. And then you have the Federspiel, which is the lower uh, mid-range kind of wine, medium body wine. And then you have the Steinfeder, which is the simpler wine that you can drink in the Horrigan or the wine bar in, uh, in around the Danube River. So uh, there was a big uh, investment on the Austrian government. And uh, I think it's paying off by educating uh, more people around the world about Austrian wines. And it's, uh, I feel, you know, today, not like uh, 1998, no, just like discussing serious Austrian wines in the United States. And I see the development has really uh, surpassed my imagination. So people do think like, hey, that, that can be a superb area for, yeah, for wine. Absolutely. Does that include red wine or is that mostly, the fame is mostly for the whites? No, also the red wines. If you mm -hmm. if you go for red varietals in Austria, there's some beautiful varietal like Blaufrankisch, which is, you know, in France would be like Gamay or uh, mm -hmm. Lemberga in Germany. Uh, Blaufrankisch you find also in Croatia. And this is grown around the Bogenland area, around the, the lake uh, Nozidla. And you find beautiful wine that uh, really simple yet it's very refreshing and you can drink it and you can match it with from simple dishes like you know some some ham and cheese and uh, to you know a full duck or maybe a goose so in this country do you see uh, more and more people pouring the wines by the glass putting the wines on the list that kind of thing that's happened uh, Austrian wines in a lot of places. I, mean, I think every place that I know of uh, in between New York and San Francisco, most of places right now, you're doing some Austrian wines, one shape or the other. Either it's uh, for the dessert wine, which we call a cheese wine now, because it's a great match with cheese, uh, or it's a still wine, whether white or red. Uh, the red varietal beside the Blau Franke, there's also Blau Portuguese, which is a very nice uh, red wine. And you have also... Uh, um Zweigelt, which is uh, one of the important uh, hybrid that's made in the turn of the century, 1923, by Dr. Zweigelt. And he put this uh, wine together between uh, uh, St. Laurent and, uh, and Blaufrankisch, made them together and created this uh, Zweigelt. It's a good thing that his name was that, otherwise it would be really confusing <laughs> if, it, if he had a different name. If his name was like Zeno Mavro, and, yeah. and, and then, you know, then he created Zweigelt and... You well, know, you'd be always confused. You in know the turn I mean? of the century, there was a lot of people like Dr. Zweigelt. There was also Dr. Rebo in Lombardia. Yeah, sure, right. And he made a Tiroldi go and Merlot together and uh, created Rebo wine. 
there was in France, a couple of uh, producers created some, uh, some hybrid uh, clones. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to see people uh, work with the vines and uh, create some nice uh, hybrid that can last. And the hybrid were also made to protect the rootstock from the phylloxera that happened in uh, 1870. So we've talked a little bit about some of the chefs that made an impact in the 80s and 90s, but who are some of the chefs that are really making an impact now that you see in the Italian or Austrian side? Well, uh, on the Austrian side, there's no doubt there's two people that uh, I think uh, I think of them as really the the leaders, you know, Kurt Gutenbrunner from Valse and Blauwagans and the group. Um, and Ervin from Cafe Katia also is a great chef, uh, very innovative. Uh, most of the Austrian chefs are really also the Wolfgang at Adrian uh, Wolf is also a very good chef. Um, when people work with passion and innovation, they can always achieve their goals if they work hard and do their homework. Uh, while people, when they are lazy, it's like in everything else that uh, you know doesn't work. On the Italian scene, for sure, there is uh, some great guys out there. This uh, Scott uh, uh, Conan is uh, one of the very, very talented uh, chef. Uh, also, you have, uh, for sure, Michael White also is his uh, great uh, places. Uh, you have uh, Mario Batali and uh, his group of uh, great chefs in there. So most of these guys are really working into innovation and give the best that they can do. And, I, and I've experienced all of them. What, what has surprised you about the New York restaurant culture over the last 20 years? Things that have changed or things that you just uh, didn't expect? Well, it's becoming more uh, professional in, in a lot of places uh -huh. and becoming uh, also lazy in some places. Oh, okay. So you have places that they are striving to do better and better and some people uh, in some some of these places they are lazy they are like uh, they think that they're working for uh, you know a computer company trying to sell some software or something but uh, the restaurant business is a restaurant business based on relationships mm -hmm. if if you have a good relationship with your clientele i think you're going to be very successful if you don't have that relation you will always be having trouble making it so a little personality kind of goes along. Very right? important. Personality, it's missing right now in, in a lot of restaurants. Most of the staff are just like robots coming in to take your order, put it in the computer and come back with the dishes. Somebody else is needing anything. It's like, okay, they look at you and they pass by you and they don't even see what you have on your table. Um, I've noticed, I go out almost every night, as you know, and uh, I've seen places that you can have like, you know, not only dirty dishes sitting on a table for a longer period of time, but also there's nobody's pouring the wine, nobody, mm -hmm. nobody recommending wine. Everybody's like relying on a sommelier just to do everything in every table, while the staff doesn't show their interest of helping that sommelier to achieve his job in a better way. So the staff in every restaurant they have to be more uh, attentive and more educated. They have to read more. But certainly you've seen it in some restaurants, yeah? Absolutely. Um, what has been the change with sommiers in New York? you find that they're more open to Italian wine? Do you find that they're more... How, how have things changed? Has it gotten younger? Has well, in, if you go back in the 80s, most of the uh, sommiers, that were also very few. They are not as much as we have today. 
and most of them, the education of the Sommelier Association was based on most of the classes, based on French wine, and then a little bit of California, a little bit of Italy, a little bit of whatever else that they can put their hand on. Uh, in the, in the seventies and eighties, was mostly you know the acceptable wine in every place was only French. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, French is okay. Uh, in the eighties and the nineties, people start to open their eyes to some other option. They got bored with the same thing all the time. I'm finding sommeliers today to be much more knowledgeable and uh, and they're striving to learn and study and uh, go through challenges with various wines every day. So, uh, yes, I think there are much better sommeliers we have today than we had in the old days. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, the only one from the old days I can remember is Roger de Gorn. I think he's still the master. Uh, he's a master sommelier. The, the other one is... Uh, and he still works the floor. And he still works he's, the floor. He's still yeah. around. He's still Absolutely. running a program. Good and... personality. People like him uh, mm-hmm. wherever he goes, and people always follow him. Uh, this is the kind of personality that you enjoy uh, in, in the restaurant that you go to. A sommelier that's not assuming. He is giving you some nice information. And if you don't like it, you know, he will, will not charge you for it. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's the idea. You know, when you go to, in, in, in the beginning of the, the 90s, mid-90s, sommeliers start to give you on the table, they give you some other wine that you didn't even order to give you an experience of the place, give you like to taste this wine coming from XYZ place, taste this wine, taste this wine. You feel like you are sitting with a passionate people about wine, where in some places you're lucky to get your bottle of wine at the right temperature. Yeah, things that are important to me are the... The way of handling people, and that's very important uh, for every sommelier. They have to, you know, be more uh, on the, on the floor than going to their offices, making their inventory. The successful sommelier can always be in the floor, not in a corner of the restaurant. Uh, I'm a sommelier, so I, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm talking about friends, and uh, I love them. I just need to see, you know, more of the good style uh, working sommeliers in the marketplace. It's going to help everybody. It's going to help the industry, can help themselves and create more culture and the support of the innovation of good wine and good relationships with every client that you face in, in the restaurant place. Do you think that one of the reasons Italian restaurants sort of started to take off in the late 80s and 90s in New York is that the Italians had more of those kind of personal relationship skills and were a little easier yes. uh, as as persons, as personalities than some of the, the more stodgy establishments. Yeah. I mean if 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 you if you look at the Italian sommeliers in New York, I think you didn't you didn't see that many Italian sommeliers until like maybe in the nineties. Uh mostly the the owner of the restaurant used to be the sommelier or the manager of the restaurant used to be the sommelier. Just based on in, in his own experience for tasting some wine on his own or some friends and and when the people come in he recommend the wine that he think was was good for him so maybe it's good for them as well and that was the kind of relationship uh, for for every owner in the 80s in the 90s I think the owners they didn't have enough time to be on the floor so they hired uh, GM and the GM hired a sommelier and the sommelier hired a second sommelier and and you have like a sommelier team in some yeah. places. And it's very helpful. It's very helpful. It just they need to be more personal with mm-hmm. with the people. Not so. Just, you think uh, once that owner hires somebody else, one of the <clears throat> downsides is that they can become too professional and not personable. Yes, 
what's going to happen next with Italian wine? I mean, we've seen the development uh, of of classics. We've seen the development of higher prices. We've seen respect given to the wines, uh, especially from Barolo and Brunello, uh, where people think of them as some of the greats. Um, now we, we saw some stylistic changes. What's going to happen in the next 10 years? I think the next 10 years for the Italian wine is going to be just working very hard to make a vintage because as the weather is getting hotter and hotter every year, our normal harvesting time has been going to always two weeks in advance of time. You know, let's say when we're like harvesting, you know, Barolo and Barbaresco, like, you know, mid-October, now we're going to mid-September, so it's like a month in advance. You can harvest your Barbera and Dolcetto like maybe two weeks or three weeks in advance. Uh, all the whites are harvesting right now, it's like two, three weeks in advance. So it's really more work of solving the, the heat problem. And uh, cellar you know, conditions are very important also. And, uh, staying away from all the diseases between uh, all kind of disease that you have in the cellar or diseases that you have in the vineyard. Uh, I think Italian wine has a great chance for even more grow, uh, growth in, uh, in the United States market and also in uh, all over the world. I mean, we see Chinese wine, a Chinese market, I'm sorry, the Chinese, Chinese markets start to take Italian wines now in big uh, quantity. Uh, looks like Brazil has also started to drink uh, some Italian wines in a big quantities. Uh, this international market, the emerging markets are learning about the wine culture and the wine uh, of Italy and the wine of Austria as well and the wine of France. Uh, I'm very happy that we are in a certain time of our life that we can see people drinking wine and the goal is to see everybody in the world drinking a glass of wine. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.